Welcome to the Edge Conservation Podcast, where we bring you the latest in innovation, insight, and effort on the front lines of wildlife conservation in Africa and around the world. I'm your host, Kira Dorian. Today, we are taking you to Big Bear, California to speak with Bob Cisneros, curator of Big Bear Alpine Zoo. Bob, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Kara. I really appreciate being um, on the airwaves and being on this podcast. And thank you, Eric, um, for being our engineer in this process. But I'm excited and thrilled to be here. Yay. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up working for Big Bear Alpine Zoo? Oh, gosh. Um, So that story goes back to um, 1967, (laughs) when I uh, strolled through the um, Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian and walked up to um, an exhibit of, uh, it was this this huge, big bull elephant. And I was so caught up with that that um, I I have never overcome that, um, that amazing feeling towards animals and the the, uh, awesome nature that they have. Um, When I was younger, I watched uh, Jacques Cousteau and Mutual of of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I I was really inspired by the the way that they were able to educate the public, but also be hands-on in uh, in nature conservation and um, wildlife protection. Later on, when I went to college, I studied zoology and psychology at the University of Hawaii, and then I worked at the Institute of Marine Biology as a research technician at the University of Hawaii, Um, worked with bottlenose dolphins, went on um, research cruises south of the uh, equator, um, did research on deserted islands uh, north of Oahu, um, went down in submersibles, worked in aquaculture, And um, when I left Hawaii and moved to California, um, I started working for San Diego Zoo. And I worked for San Diego Zoo for 23 years. Um, And during that time, I worked essentially with every single species at the zoo, uh, with the exception of elephants, um, ironically, and um, venomous snakes. Um, while at San Diego Zoo, I had an opportunity, several opportunities to work in conservation, um, working on the tree um, kangaroo project in northern um, uh, Queensland in Australia, uh, as well as the um, being a member of the International Polar Bear Conservation Council and doing some work in Churchill and uh, Manitoba, <clears throat> and also um, through the American Association of Zookeepers, um, also working with the International Rhino Foundation uh, in Java and Sumatra, um, working with the, um, with the rhino protection units um, in those two areas, uh, protecting Sumatran uh, rhinos and Javan rhinos. And at the um, tail end of my career at San Diego, I wanted to make a difference on a daily basis and felt that I had learned enough in all of my um, my travels and experiences um, that uh, I would be a benefit to a smaller organization. And when I found out that Big Bear Alpine Zoo was looking for a curator and they were um, in the process of planning for, 
for a brand new facility. I thought that would be an excellent opportunity for me to come um, work <clears throat> in an organization where I could make a difference on a daily basis and build a brand new zoo, which no one in our profession gets to make. Yeah, that's incredible. That's great. So tell us about your role, because I know you said your title is curator, but you're a lot more than that. So tell us what you're doing with them. First, I can define what a curator does. The curator curates, which essentially means manages the collection, whether you're um, the curator of an antique car collection or the curator of um, of jewels or um, or furs or um, statuary or museum collections or animals. And by curating, you not only are in charge of the acquisition or the incoming um, of animals, but also the disposition, which disposition um, in the zoo industry means um, animals that leave the organization, possibly for breeding or for transfer, or another institution has better space. Um, and sometimes disposition also means when an animal passes, um, that's considered a disposition. And then also the welfare of the collection, the how the collection is operating in the now, and managing not only that, but how the staff are trained and how they take care of all the animals. So generally, that's what a curator does um, at a zoo. The curator is in, in charge of making sure that the, the live collection has everything that it needs. My, my title um, is expanded, and I, I always joke and say I'm the DOE, which is the director of everything. And that means I'm the director of social marketing or um, social media, marketing, planned giving, development, uh, guest relations, guest engagement, the zoo culture, new construction um, as it relates to um, to the zoo, um, staff professional development, uh, facilities maintenance, um, interpretive services, veterinary care, um, safety liaison. I'm also a member of the public information office here um, on the mountain so that whenever we have disasters, we have a, a really good communication network. Uh, education director, and I know you're limited, so I'll just stop there. And as you can see, it's a, <laughs> it's a lot. pretty diversified um, position. Yeah, you are the director of everything. That's a great that's a great job title. So tell me what makes this particular zoo unique. There are several things that make us unique. Um, one is that we're one of two alpine zoos in the United States. Um, the other alpine zoo is located in Colorado Springs. It's the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. And they're only at 6,000 feet. Our elevation is 7,000 feet. So you might say we're the highest elevated zoo in the country. Um, and Cheyenne Mountain Zoo has an emphasis on African and Asian species, which they do really, really well. Can you, if you can imagine giraffes living at 6,000 feet, uh, it might cause you to scratch your head. But they have an amazing um, behavior husbandry program that uh, allows them to do a lot of work with their animals indoors um, during the cold winter months. For us, <clears throat> we focus on mostly native uh, wildlife or um, animals that live in alpine type settings. So when you walk through the zoo here, you'll see mountain lions, black bears, uh, raccoons, golden eagles, bald eagles, 
But then when you turn around, you'll see grizzly bears, which historically were in Big Bear over 100 years ago. You'll also see um, North American gray wolves, which historically were in this region um, 100 years ago. You'll also see snow leopards, snowy owls, Arctic foxes. And again, those are species that live in similar environments that do really well up here, especially the snow leopards and snowy owl. So that's one of the things that makes us unique. The other thing that makes us unique is we also provide rehabilitative services for local uh, wildlife. So when an animal gets injured, if it's sick or orphaned, um, those animals are brought to the zoo. Our main goal is to get them well, both physically and mentally, and back out into the wild. And when I say mentally, it's really important for us when we work with these animals that we allow no imprinting to take place, which is really different from being an, an animal care provider in a zoo. We, uh, with our zoo animals, we encourage trust. We want our animals to trust us and we wanna trust our animals and we wanna be able to have a good communication process. With rehabilitation animals, we don't want that trust at all because we want them to have a healthy fear and respect for humans when they go back out into the wild. Otherwise, you could have a bobcat that jumps on your picnic table challenging you for that drumstick um, out of that bucket of um, wherever you get your chicken from. So our goal is to get them back out healthy and um, not imprinted and um, definitely um, able to fend for themselves. That's probably one of the things that makes us unique. We're also the um, only zoo in San Bernardino County, the largest county in the United States, which actually makes us the largest zoo in the county and the largest zoo in the largest county in the United States. So um, we could go on accolades all day long with, with that. but. Several things make us unique, and those are some of the ones that matter. It must be very challenging to be caring and nurturing, you know, caring for and nurturing an animal that you're rehabilitating and avoid the imprinting, you know, because you're showing care and concern and love and, and all of that. And yet you're trying to, as you said, you know, keep this healthy respect for humans so that later down the road, it's not like, oh, that's my loving person who took care of me when I was sick. I'll just go up to them and ask for the drumstick, right? Right. And that kind of dissociation is really important. And it's a, it's a difficult one to, um, to, really, to be able to really train staff with because by nature, we, we, we take on these roles as animal care providers and zookeepers because we want, one, because we, we feel this, this closeness to animals that we want to be. And so when you go into rehab, it's like taking off one coat and putting, off and putting on another. And, and it's important for the, for the long-term care of that animal and the success of the release that they want nothing to do with you whatsoever. And that's where you have to leave your ego at the door right? and um, <clears throat> place that in check and then <clears throat> make a decision that what we do is a matter of purpose um, first before pleasure. And that if you follow the rules of purpose, the pleasure will fall into place. We get great pleasure in releasing an animal back in the wild, and that's our final ultimate goal. Um, it would be terrible if we uh, imprinted an animal, then couldn't find a home for it, and then had to euthanize it because it couldn't go back in the wild and there was no place for it to go anyplace else. 
So those are those are harsh realities of rehabilitation, but it's it's best to approach it in that kind of neutral state where your relationship with that animal is insignificant because it's for its best um, interest that we do that. Sure. So can you tell our listeners what a wildlife ambassador is and how you make that determination for an animal? When it comes to um, wildlife here at the zoo, we have two types of animals. Um, Our wildlife ambassadors who are um, permanent members of the zoo And then we have our wildlife uh, rehabilitation animals that are not part of the zoo. And in fact, they're not even um, visible to the public for reasons that we stated earlier. We don't want them being used to being around humans. Every single one of our animals at the zoo is a wildlife ambassador. And the reason why is because they represent their counterparts or their species in the wild. Those animals become... um, the um, representatives that allow us to make strong connections to their counterparts in the wild. And the best thing that we can do when guests come to the zoo is really talk about not individual animals, but the uniqueness of the species. For instance, we have four black bears here at Big Bear Alpine Zoo. And all four of those bears were rescued. And I... I like to tell folks um, our our bears are safe. We have a very strong enrichment program. We utilize evidence-based management. Um, the interests of our animals here at the zoo are um, uh, we provide the best care possible for these um, for these bears. So suffice it to say that they're safe. We have 400 wild bears on the mountain, and we have 40,000 wild black bears in the state. And none of those bears are essentially safe from human-animal interactions that are negative. Uh, Every one of those animals has a potential of having some kind of negative impact. So our job is not to um, to have uh, have your hearts directed to the animals that we have here at the zoo, but we, we utilize the stories of our animals and the uniqueness of their species to draw attention to the need to preserve and conserve wildlife in wild places. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. In fact, it's, it's been such a common theme throughout this podcast as we've been doing interviews. Pretty much everyone has said the same thing. How do we get anyone to care about the animals that need protection without exposing them to the animals themselves? It's just so, impossible. Kira, can I ask you a question? Sure. And it's not a non sequitur. Um, describe who was your most favorite memorable concert? My most favorite memorable concert? Uh-huh. Oh, man. I, see, I wasn't prepared to get interviewed today. <laughs> <laughs> My most favorite memorable concert was probably... Uh, Pink. I saw Pink uh. live before she was famous. So and that uh, was pretty I'll tell great. you mine. Mine was Freddie Mercury, and I saw Queen. Oh well, you have J- me beat. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you why. I saw Queen um, in Japan in 1975 when Killer Queen first broke out, and then I saw them again in 1977 when Bohemian Rhapsody broke out. The first time I ever saw Pyrotechnics. And let me tell you why that question is important. You can listen to iTunes or go to YouTube um, 
or buy a CD, but it's not the same as being there. Yeah. And when you're there, you have a connection with that artist that will never go away. And I wasn't sitting close enough to be able to really, you know, see the expression on on Freddie Mercury's face, but I felt the heat from the pyrotechnics and the boom of the bass. I will always remember that concert when I hear Bohemian Rhapsody because that concert was a conduit. It, all of my senses were rattled. And so when people come to the zoo, that's our job. Our job is to connect the dots, connect those people to wildlife in a way that they will never forget it. The next time they see a black bear or a mountain lion or a raccoon on TV or in an ad or National Geographic, they're going to remember about what they learned about black bears or raccoons or mountain lions while they were here at the Big Bear Alpine Zoo. Those strong connections and those challenges that we give them to be partners in conservation, those are, are, um, those are, are not as significant um, if we don't provide them with a really strong connection to a, a live animal. And that's why our ambassadors are so important. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Here's my next question. Zoos kind of get a bad rap. I feel like it's, in fact, just the other day I was telling someone I host this podcast and their first question was, what do you think about zoos? <laughs> and um, I think that a lot of people don't understand that, that how important that piece of it is. What else are zoos doing to help in the preservation of endangered species? Aside from creating that heart connection, I know that they're involved in lots of other ways. What are those ways? When I look at, a, at what makes a good zoo, um, several things come to mind. One is, are the welfare principles and the way that the animals are cared for defensible based on the five freedoms and um, the Animal Welfare Act? The five freedoms being freedom from hunger or thirst, freedom from discomfort, freedom from pain, injury, or disease, freedom to express normal behavior, and freedom from fear and distress. Those are the basics of animal welfare. Secondly, are the, the exhibits designed in such a way that they, one, encourage natural behaviors, and two, promote the uniqueness of their species. In other words, not having a raccoon exhibit that has a playground and a swing in it because it's cute to see raccoons um, swinging or sliding down a slide. So natural um, looking exhibits are important. The third one is, does a zoo provide um, a challenge? Does it promote agents for change in their messaging? In other words, do they promote a partnership with their guests that say everything that we do has a positive or a negative impact on the ecosystem around us? And we would like you to partner with us because we believe that every individual makes a difference. Whether you're donating financially, whether you're donating your time, or whether you're doing something as simple as reduce, reuse, and recycle, everything we do has a positive or negative impact. There's no middle ground. When, and, and then finally, the fourth thing is, and, and not all zoos are capable of doing this, what kind of contribution, direct contribution, do they make towards conservation? Our biggest contribution right now is the rehabilitation care that, that uh, we give to wildlife here. We take in sick, injured, and orphaned animals, and we 
send out healthy ones. We're looking at getting involved in some um, conservation work with endangered species, which is um, uh, something we've never done before. So when you ask, what are zoos doing that um, make significant impact besides a guest experience? The larger zoos and the um, accredited zoos through the Association of Zoos and Aquarium and also the Zoological Association of America promote um, conservation directly. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you some examples of where major zoos have made um, a strong impact. Uh, in the early 70s, there were only seven um, Mexican wolves left in the world, actually 13. Um, and they were all in Mexico. U.S. Fish and Wildlife got permission to go into Mexico, capture those wolves, bring them to the United States, and start a breeding program. We currently have about between 200 and 300 Mexican wolves in captivity and about 200 to 250 Mexican wolves in the wild. Each year, Mexican wolves are released into um, the mountain regions of Arizona and New Mexico, which is their historic um, habitat. And we're, we're hoping to um, restore the natural balance. Yellowstone is another really good example. The California condor could not have been, um, uh, could not have made a return um, from the brink of extinction were it not for zoos like um, San Diego Zoo and Los Angeles Zoo who worked really hard at, at doing captive release programs. The black-footed ferret, um, the clapper rail, there are a lot of the prairie chicken. Um, there are a lot of species that have been um, have made some amazing uh, turnarounds because of the work that zoo conservation programs do. It's extremely significant. And then when you look at the conservation dollars that go out to support um, conservation efforts in the wild, a lot of that money is being um, generated through conservation programs at major zoos. I love that. So what can we as the public do to encourage all of this that's happening, all the positive stuff that's happening in the, quote, good zoos? Everybody has a zoo within driving range. Um, and um, and even then, I, I think it's really important to be to be good stewards of your money, but also to be good stewards of, of your land. I think there are a couple of things that they can do is do their homework, um, find out what their zoos are doing and um, and find out what where they want to support a zoo. Do they want to sponsor rhino protection units in Indonesia and rhino protection units in um, in Kenya, or do they want to sponsor um, um, Red Panda Network? There are a lot of different programs that can be sponsored. San Diego Zoo has amazing um, conservation programs through the Institute for Conservation Research. Um, and then organizations like Los Angeles Zoo, Living Desert, uh, and, and hopefully soon Big Bear Alpine Zoo with the mountain yellow-legged frog um, restoration project. I, my, my exhortation would be to remember that every individual matters and that you can make a significant contribution, no matter how big or how small, um, to... Um, promote 
um, the, the balance of the ecosystem and the restoration and preservation of wildlife and wild places. So I guess my follow-up question is, what what does a person do? Let's say they go to their local zoo and their local zoo does have, you know, uh, an area where the monkeys are sliding down a slide, where it doesn't meet that criteria for what makes it a good zoo. Is there recourse? I mean, what can we as the public do to help shift all the zoos into the right direction? So there's no law that says that a, a, a monkey exhibit can't have a slide or a swing set in it. Um, it's best um, for for the guest connection and for the primate to use some natural resources and natural items that they'd normally find in the wild. But if you find yourself walking into a zoo and things just don't seem right, the, you know, the power of the pen is an important thing. I, I would write to the zoo official in a very constructive way. I would cite examples of how um, promoting uh, natural behaviors begins with providing a natural, um, a naturalistic exhibit, and um, and that animals exhibiting natural behaviors is is a is a great thing for zoo guests to see. The last thing they want to see is an animal acting as if it were someone's pet. So to me, that's that's the power of the pen and the individual is. Write directly to the zoo, have a conversation, and um, if that doesn't work, then, um, I, like I said, there, there there are no rules that say they can't do that, but best practices are provide an opportunity for your animals to thrive, um, not just get by. Yeah. So I understand that you are the national president of the American Association of Zookeepers. Is that correct? Uh, I was. I was president from... 2011 until 2015, and a board member from 2007 until 2015. 2015 was my last year. I, I spent two terms with them. And what were your duties when you were the president? What kind of things were you involved in working with them? Um, I, my my job as president of the organization, it's a professional member-based organization of animal care professionals about about 2,800 to 3,000 members across the country and, and overseas. And so my, my job was essentially to uh, keep the, the organization in line with the mission and promote the vision of the organization. So for us, it was establishing a, a clear pathway for professional development to strengthen the zookeeping profession starting with our conference structure um, and promoting um, strong workshops that um, that build stronger zookeepers um, in terms of skill sets. Um, we developed a certification program and online distance learning um, format with the help of San Diego Zoo Global Academy. Um, <clears throat> and then on our conservation end, we took a, um, a solid fundraising program that averaged about $250,000 a year, and within a four-year period, transformed um, our Bowling for Rhinos program, which the funds went to support uh, rhino conservation in Lewa um, and also rhino conservation in Indonesia. We went from $250,000 to $550,000, and the changes that we made um, are still 
still going strong. I think last year the association raised six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Um, so we've made a significant impact on an annual basis. Uh, so my my job was really to um, organize the committees, give them direction, establish tasks, maintain um, a a um, a fluid set of progress with our task lists, and um, create an organization, um, or I shouldn't say create because we are all already in progress, but essentially run run an organization with the help of our executive director in a very fluid and transparent motion, engage our guests and um, help improve the status of our um, profession. Wonderful. Okay, I have two more questions for you. One is going to sound a little off topic, but I'm just curious. So I understand that you also spent a lot of time with wolves at the California Wolf Center. Right, I forgot which about that. Which is so cool. So I, <laughs> I would really love to know what you learned during your time with them. Um, I learned a lot of things, <clears throat> and you can't be in this profession without being a lifelong learner. And what, one of the things about being a solid animal care professional is you have to develop critical thought, which means you have to look at everything as if you've seen it for the very first time and then ask yourself why. <laughs> when I worked at the California Wolf Center, I, I, I learned a number of things. I was the um, vice president. I was on the board of directors. So I was on the vice, I was the vice president of operations. Um, and we had about 40 volunteers and I learned something really valuable for me as a, as a manager. And that's that volunteers, um, volunteer for a variety of reasons. Uh, zoo professionals, um, come into the, the job basically for one or two reasons. One, they love working with animals. Um, volunteers on the other hand, volunteer because, they don't have. They have nothing to do on Saturdays. They want to do something good with their life. They love the principles of the Wolf Center. They love wolves. Um, they don't like working with people. A whole bunch of different reasons, and sometimes a combination. So I learned that it's a really interesting um, perspective to manage uh, a number of people that have varying reasons for being there, which means their motivations. Um, and the ability to motivate them are equally varied. Um, the other thing I learned, <clears throat> and I've used this practice here, is um, when I was at San Diego Zoo, I, I was a hospital keeper for nine years. And during that time, as a hospital keeper, my job was to um, grab up, net um, any of the animals that I possibly could because um, we were getting ready for procedures. And um, when we had those procedures, we, um, we were trying to um, get um, the animals uh, either injected or something else. So <clears throat> capture restraint was my forte. When I got to the California Wolf Center, when we did our annual exams, I netted wolves, because that's what I did. I think in my career I've netted probably close to 15,000 um, animals, um, if I do the math correctly. But what I learned at the Wolf Center is that wolves have a social hierarchy. And in that social hierarchy, um, they, and Kira, I'm, I'm going to assume you know something about wolves. I don't know much about wolves, which is why I'm particularly curious about it. <laughs> 
Okay, so so they have a social hierarchy, and that means they have a boss. That boss is called the alpha male. The alpha male um, basically is the one that calls the shots. All the other and and wolves not only have a social hierarchy, but they also have uh, a um, a means of visual communication. Tail tucked, tail curled up, tail straight out, tail wagging, ears forward, ears back, teeth exposed, mouth open, face yawn. All of these visual um, cues um, convey a message. So wolves are in a constant state of reaffirming the role of the boss. And so they'll come up to the boss and they'll roll up on their back and they'll expose their belly which is a form of submission. Our, our animals at home do this. Um, and of course we see it as a desire for a belly scratch. But in the wolf um, territory, they will throw themselves on, the, on their back or they will go sternal and tuck. Essentially what they're doing is they're reaffirming and saying, you are the boss, you the man. I don't want to challenge you whatsoever until the day that another wolf comes over and gives him the look, bears his teeth, growls a little bit, takes a nip even. And those wolves will then just have, they'll duke it out until somebody backs down. Hmm. So knowing that, we have a restraint process called the Wipole technique. <clears throat> and if you can imagine a long aluminum pole with a Y at the end, and, the, and the, the extensions on the Y are about 12 inches on each side. And, they're, and those extensions are padded with thick foam padding. Um, when we need to restrain a wolf, rather than net the wolf, we'll approach the wolf with a group of people, get it in a corner, and then the single person with the Y pole will approach the wolf extend the Y pole as an extension of themselves very calmly, very confidently, bring it over to their muzzle and they will bite it. And they'll probably bite it one or two times until they realize that nothing is going to happen. Nothing has changed. The person holding the pole does not flinch one bit. And then the Y pole is then gently rubbed against the snout, brought down to the neck and then gently really gently placed, just like you were just patting somebody on the shoulder, but gently placed on their shoulder. <laughs> and the amazing thing is because nothing happened when that wolf bit that Y-pole, they realized they have a formidable opponent who is not going to run away. Hmm. When that Y-pole goes on the shoulder, the second Y-pole comes over and fits right on the hips. And again, it's it's about the same amount of pressure that you would um, you would feel if um, if you were gently shaking somebody's hand or if you put your hands on your knees. It's just enough pressure to um, to actually just be there. After several minutes, the wolf realizes that nothing's going to change, and they go sternal. Hmm. Once they go sternal we're able to put a muzzle and then hobble. Hobble just simply means we restrain um, the front paws and hind legs um, in such a way that they can't get up 
and go away. And we've been able to do full examinations on wolves that way. I learned this through Mark Johnson, who uh, was the, the veterinarian um, through Wildlife Resources. Um, he was the project veterinarian at, uh, with the return of wolves to Yellowstone um, quite a while back. And <clears throat> Mark Johnson is a great friend of mine, still a mentor. We, we talk periodically. Um, this technique has worked at the California Wolf Center on wolves that have never been caught in a net or anything else. And it's, I've used it here on several wolves. If you ask me if anything I've ever learned about wolves at the Wolf Center that was truly um, unique, it, it's the fact that a psychological restraint like that is so effective. And I have netted the alpha males, I, I've netted all the wolves at the Wolf Center, and trust me, it's quite a physical um, restraint um, for both the wolf and the handler, uh, and dangerous. So the Y-pull technique um, is something that is a really amazing thing to see. That is really cool. Well, before we finish up, I'd like to bring us back to Big Bear Alpine Zoo. So can you just tell everyone who's listening, if they want information on the zoo, what's the website? What are your social media handles? How can they find you? If you're interested in finding out more about Big Bear Alpine Zoo, um, there are two ways. One is to go to our website. Actually, three. Come to the zoo. Come to Big Bear. We're <laughs> 7,000 feet. It's beautiful up here. We have a lake. Mm. Uh, we have skiing across the street. Um it's it's a unique part of seven uh, Southern California. We have four seasons, um, but if you can't do that, you can go to our website, which is www.bigbearalpinezoo.org. If you really want to have a finger on the pulse of what's happening at Big Bear, we have Facebook and Instagram. Go to our Facebook page. Just type in Big Bear Alpine Zoo. And from there, you really get some um, up-to-date um, photos and videos of not only our ambassadors here, but new zoo updates and um, wildlife rehabilitation releases. So it, it, our social media is really strong, and it's one of the best ways that we communicate with our membership as well as our followers. Wonderful. And my last question, and you kind of touched on this already, but I'd love to hear more. When people come to your zoo, what do you hope that they carry with them when they leave? It's probably one of the best questions that can be asked to a zoo director um, because that's the whole purpose of, um, of a zoo is to, to instill some form or element of change. What we want to see is, um, actually, we want to see a couple of things. <clears throat> One, we, we want people to recognize how amazing and awesome animals are. Um, and we do this through our exhibits and our animals and our keeper presentations. We also want um, people to recognize that um, wildlife and wild places can coexist peacefully with man as long as we make a concerted effort to make that happen. And so we ask our, our guests, 
to extend their partnership with us. They became a partner as soon as they walked through the gates because they paid. And that funding goes directly into our budget, which enables us to do the work that we do. But we ask them to do more. And when we ask that, we generally will give them direction. Be a member of the zoo. Be a volunteer if you can. Directly donate. Adopt an animal. Like us on Facebook. Staying informed about what the zoo is doing is a great way to support us. But most importantly, be an element of change when you leave and go home. Um, and for us, it's important that people realize that every individual can make a difference. So we want people to, um, to be masters of conservation at their own home by recycling, um, by reducing, um, taking the bus instead of driving, riding a bike instead of driving, um, and we want people to recognize that the only way that this mountain here in Big Bear will be around for their children and their grandchildren is if they make it um, a priority for, for them and their family to preserve the mountain, that it, it, can't, be, um, it can't be left up to other people. Akira, there are, are 13 employees here at the zoo, and we're working as hard as we can. But at the end of the day, we can only do so much. We have 130,000 people who visit the zoo every year. Imagine if we influenced 10% to make changes. That's 13,000 people who go, leave, and do something that has a positive impact on ecosystem and uh, wildlife. So to me, 13,000 people can do a lot more than 13 individuals. And that's the focus that we make. I love that. By the way, more people attend accredited zoos in the United States than all major sporting events combined every year. Wow. So our job is not to enter, just to entertain and just show off animals. If we can be the creators of change through our guests and a conduit and connection for um, wildlife conservation, with those kind of numbers, we can really promote some uh, amazing changes. It's fantastic. Bob, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. It was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having this opportunity to speak with you and also to your listeners. Well, as always, I like to finish with a quote. Today, I actually have two of them. The first one is from Jack Hanna, who says, zoo animals are ambassadors for their cousins in the wild. And after our conversation with Bob today, I think we can all agree that that's true. The second one, though, is from Betty White, who I love. And she says, people forget the good that zoos do. If it weren't for zoos, we would have so many species that would be extinct today. Join us next week. Our show is produced by Eric Johnson, Kira Dorian, and Edge. Thanks for listening.